Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, Melanie Curry, editor of California Streets Blog, on the amazing number of bike-friendly bills on the California governor's desk at this moment. Melanie Curry, the editor of Streets Blog California. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. I'm doing great. It's been an exciting time at the Capitol this year. It's a little overwhelming. I don't think I've ever seen a session that had this many exciting bills to talk about that we care about. So let me make this relevant for Massachusetts because we're mainly in California and Massachusetts and it's hard to keep it relevant to both. So Massachusetts is the number one bike-friendly state in the United States, according to- Congratulations. Thanks, League of American (laughs) Cyclists. With this legislation, it looks like California may be gunning for Massachusetts' top spot. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And these are important bills, and it will change things. Some things will change quickly. Some things will change eventually. But notice, not a one of these bills has yet been signed. They're all sitting on the governor's desk, so we can't count any chickens here. So let's go down the list of bills. Okay. So the first one I would want to talk about, we already know, has not passed. And that was one that would have created an Idaho stop in California so that bikes could treat stop signs as yield signs. I don't know what Massachusetts situation is, but there are several states, including Delaware, who've adopted something like that. And we're hopeful, but in the end, the author pulled it because she said it was clear that Newsom was not interested in signing it. She had done a bill just like that last year. She tried to adapt, tried to answer his concerns, but it wasn't going to work. So she decided to pull it. I'm hearing the reasons for why we should treat stop signs as yield for cyclists. And they include research that shows that it's safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also very different in terms of the energy of a cyclist and what it takes to stop and get going again. I wrote that years ago. (laughs) I wrote that with a physical scientist who actually tested how much energy it took to stop and start at stop signs. It was pretty interesting, but it's pretty hard to explain to people in cars. They sometimes just say, hey, it's not fair. And they don't like the idea that this is what bike riders are doing. So therefore, we should make it legal. That's not really the argument. It is what a lot of bike riders do, but they do it for a lot of really good reasons. And you get on a bike and in a second, you pretty much understand because you can see much better and you can hear much better and you're a lot more vulnerable. So when you're on a bike and you approach a four-way stop, there's a lot of quiet streets with four-way stops, which are the only intersections that this would apply to in California, by the way. You can see farther, you can hear if someone's coming, you can see whether it's clear or not. And if you can go through, not just blow through the stop, but if you can slow down and go through, you clear the intersection quicker and you have less of a chance of being hit by a car who might or might not be stopping themselves at that intersection. And that's actually what they've found in Delaware. The safe results were kind of surprising. There were just fewer crashes at those intersections where the bike riders treated as a stop sign. And then, of course, there's the whole argument that we shouldn't be penalizing bike riders for doing what is a rational, safe move. And even in my town in Berkeley, California, on a bike boulevard, the cops were giving people tickets. And I'm convinced that it was because they needed to show that they were giving tickets equally to car drivers and bike riders and pedestrians under what they thought were the terms of their grant from the state for enforcing safety. 
And so they stopped bikes on a bike boulevard and gave them tickets because they were sitting up. Come on, you're not going to stop and put your foot down if there's no traffic. I don't know the last time I've seen a car stop at a stop sign. Well, there's that too. (laughs) Yeah, I live on a four-way stop. We actually have a traffic circle in my intersection. Where I work, I am looking out at an intersection and cars don't stop. And that's a lot more dangerous than a bike not stopping. And so they call it safety stop. They call it stop as yield, Idaho Mm -hmm. stop. It makes sense. And the governor did not sign it. Or he didn't even get the chance to because the author pulled it at the last minute. She said she'll come back, but she just didn't want to go through that. He vetoed it last year and she just didn't want to do it again. That's what she said anyway. So we'll see. Horvath? Yeah, Tasha Borner Horvath. That's too bad. Okay, so the bad news first. Yeah, bad news first. Well, and I don't really have good news except that these other bills have easily passed. So it actually makes me a little nervous because he might not sign them. He might veto some of these again. By the way, Newsom has until the end of the month to decide on these bills. And he kind of goes through them in groups. So we'll see. There's a really bikey one, the bicycle omnibus. Yeah, that's Laura Friedman's AB 1909, the Omnibike bill. And that's kind of a cool one because it just has these small little pieces to it, but a bunch of little things. One of the really good things is it would prohibit any local bike registration requirements because bike registration requirements are not useful. They're another way to harass bikers. By the way, if people don't already use Bike Index to register their bikes, they should go do it. All you need to do is take a picture of your bike and go online. And all that does is make a record of you owning this bike. So if it gets stolen and found, somebody can figure out who the owner is and get it back to you. And that is nationwide, I think. And it's not run by the government or anything but is like that. that what's meant by bicycle registration? No, because some cities and here where I live, I think the university require people who are riding their bikes through that city to register their bikes with that city. A lot of those are old laws that are on the books that aren't necessarily enforced, but they can be and they have been used to harass people. What else in the Omnibike? Omnibike. Okay, so we have the three foot for safety bill where right now, by law, drivers are supposed to give bikes three feet when they pass them. So there has to be three feet between the edge of their car and a bike rider. And they don't all know that, but they're supposed to be doing that. This one goes a little bit further and it requires drivers to change lanes if it's possible when they're passing bikes. This is huge. If it's not possible, that doesn't mean they can squeeze in, but that means if you're on a quiet road and there's room, they got to move way over giving you more space. Yay. It also clarifies that bike riders are allowed to use the pedestrian walk signal. We all kind of assume that, but it just makes sure that everybody knows that. It's called the leading interval. Is that right? Okay. The pedestrian head start bill is another one. I always call it leading pedestrian interval. So Richard Bloom has another bill that would require Caltrans and cities when they update their signals to give pedestrians a leading pedestrian interval, which just means they get the little go-ahead pedestrians before the red light for the cars turns green. Yeah. So that means if both of those get signed, that means that when you see those and you're on a bike, you are perfectly okay to go ahead. And I'm just going to admit, 
I do it all the time. I see these in Sacramento and I know it's much safer for everybody. If when that pedestrian signal says go, it's better for the cars that I'm next to if I go ahead too, because then they're not going to miss me. They can see me. They're not going to squeeze past me. So those two bills together are already going to make it easier. It's certain intersections, but if every intersection gets one of those pedestrian head start signals, better for pedestrians, better for bike riders too. It helps with the right turns too. So pedestrians can get out in front of a car that might be wanting to turn right as soon as it turns green. They can already be in the intersection. So great. So Omnibike, you can't require registrations. You have to be able to use the pedestrian leading signal Mm -hmm. and you have to change lanes when possible in addition to giving a cyclist three feet. Yeah. And it also makes it clear that e-bikes are allowed to use bike lanes. Right. I wish I knew a little bit more about that one. I find that one a little confusing because there are all kinds of e-bikes, but that might be a problem for a different day. Well, I know (laughs) in Massachusetts, we recently had a law that defines e-bikes. So we clear that up. We did that a few years ago. Actually, so there's like class one, class two, class three. I can't remember exactly how they go, but one of them is slow pedal assist. One can go a little bit faster, but only with pedal assist. And then there are e-bikes that don't have pedal assist. Those are almost like motorcycle. Yeah, the throttle ones. Yep, the throttle ones, right. So this bill would remove the prohibition of class three electric bicycles on these facilities. I'd have to go through here and say, what the heck is a class three? (laughs) Like up to 28 miles per hour or something? Something like that. That's fast. That is fast. But e-bikes can go faster than that. So I don't know if you're on an e-bike that goes faster than that. I think it might be considered a motorcycle. I'm not really sure under California law. Well, I'm sure they're not going to put vehicles that go faster than 30 miles an hour on bike paths. No, I would argue that they shouldn't be allowed to go 30 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. People on bikes are going a little fast, but that's one of the things that happens with mixing bikes and pedestrians. We all have to be nice to each other. Yes, but that's hard to legislate. Hard to legislate, teach people about, and then enforce. Tasha Borner Horvath, the one who was working on the bike stop as yield bill, she got a bill passed. It's setting up e-bike education. But what it does is it says the CHP needs to develop standards. So it may or may not be the best way to create an education bill, but at least they're doing something. And it's through the CHP. It would make sense to go through someone else, even like the DMV as an educational thing, or even the bike coalitions who've already done a lot of work on bike education, but that's not how it was set up. So it's okay, whatever. It's a beginning. Yeah. So I was going to say, that's another really bike-friendly person. Horvath. Yeah. Tasha Borner Horvath. She's working away on that stuff. She's been really dogged about that stop as yield bill. Brought it up twice. Yeah, I guess these legislators bring these things up over and over again. Sometimes it's the only way to get them through. (laughs) They must change them each time. A little bit. Sometimes they have to figure out who it is that's got the governor's ear and how it is that they're bending it and whether that's like something that they could talk about or what. To go back to the stop as yield, like stop sign bill. There is a children's safety group. We've been adamant that it won't work for children. And that has been a bugaboo for that bill. They just don't believe that children can learn what a yield sign is and it's too confusing and all this other stuff. So, Okay. But didn't they change it so that they're only talking about people who are 18 and over? Yeah. That was how she adapted it so that maybe he would sign it. They were not saying anything. They're not really saying why he was still opposed to it. It's interesting. It comes down to one person and who he listens to. (laughs) 
Yeah, both houses of the assembly will support it. One man, in this case, is a final decider. Exactly. And they easily pass some of these bills. So what else? That is already a whole lot, but there's more. Scott Wiener has SB 922, which is just an extension on the existing exemptions. That's the California Environmental Quality Act requires any project to go through this whole process to say it doesn't have an environmental impact. And it has been used against bike infrastructure Famously in San Francisco, a gadfly sued and held up the bike plan in the city for four or five years. They literally could not even put in as much as a bike rack because they had to wait until they went through this entire lawsuit. He got a bill passed a few years ago that said, let's try a pilot program. Anything that is logically not going to have an environmental impact. So it covers bicycle, pedestrian, and transit projects that are meant to encourage people to take these climate-friendly, environmentally-friendly modes would be exempt. But it had a sunset date. So he's written SB 922 to extend that much longer. And Scott Wiener says there's already a lot of projects that are using it that are being able to be built much faster because they don't have to go through this sometimes two-year process just to basically say, hey, this is not going to have a negative environmental impact. So yay. And those projects, as long as they don't increase car capacity, they will be covered under that. That's huge. That's really big. Because why do you need a EIR for a bike lane? Yeah. Like for every new bike, it's like, okay, maybe one bike lane, then you understand the environmental impacts of a bike lane, but then why every time? Yeah. And even then, the arguments in that San Francisco case were that if they build bike lanes, it would increase traffic congestion. And therefore, all those cars stopped in the road would increase emissions, which is a BS argument that has been used a lot about such projects. But no, you can argue that if you want, but that's not what happens. (laughs) CEQA is weird. For years, traffic impacts were a part of their environmental impacts. I know that we've talked about this in the past, but they measured traffic impacts as delay to cars. And the result of that being in CEQA was that every project that came along said, well, whatever we do, we can't delay cars. Therefore, we have to build intersections wider, which makes it much harder for pedestrians and bicyclists to safely get through them. Whatever we do, we have to keep from delaying cars. And after years of hard work, that was recently excised from CEQA. So they're not supposed to be doing that anymore. That just shows CEQA got so twisted. So this is a good cleanup first part of it. It doesn't cure the whole problem with the use of environmental laws. It helps a lot. Okay. California Environmental Quality Act. Yeah. It's sort of a parallel to NEPA, which is the National Environmental Protection Act, which has its own rules. It's a California version of that. But they are cleaning up their act. A little bit, little by little. This one is an example of one of the ways that they're doing it is by creating exemptions, which in general, I would say is not really a good idea because CEQA is a really powerful tool for communities. In fact, it's the only tool sometimes that communities can use against bad projects. It's not the best tool and it has been abused, but in general, creating exemptions may not be the best way to clean it up. But it's a start. And in this case, bicycle and pedestrian projects and transit projects that make it easier for people to take environmentally friendly modes, come on, in the balance of it, 
let's just be smart about it. <laughs> These ones are good. That's on the desk. That's on the desk. Yeah. Another so, one that's on the desk you probably spoke to Laura Friedman about was her speed limit bill. Further right. work on her. Yeah. They're going to fix something that they'd already tried to do and help them reduce speed limits. Yeah. I think this one is just sort of an example of how long it takes because she started off with one thing and then that changed to a study. And then she took the results of the study and had a bill last year that allowed cities to lower speed limits. And this one is pushing that further. The rules were really silly. And now this is giving them more and more ways to lower and enforce lower speed limits. It's not solving the problem of speed, but it's definitely a couple of steps in the right direction. Because there is that 85%. Yeah, there is. It's still there. But they've given some leeway around using that rule. Which says? That says the way to set a speed limit is to measure how fast cars are driving on a road. And then you go to the 85th percentile driver, whatever speed that driver is going to, you have to set the speed limits to that. So this gives a little more room for them to lower it. That led to speed creep. It totally did because remember, they have to keep drivers safe and they can't delay traffic. So they design roads to go faster and faster. The San Fernando Valley is a really good example of this where there used to be two lane roads and then they widened them to be four lane roads with a median. And then in the last 15 years, 20 years, they took out the parking. So they had three and four lane roads, no median in the middle. And people were going, woohoo, and they were driving really fast. So they kept having to raise the speed limits. And now if you're trying to turn right onto one of those roads, you can't because the traffic is coming too fast. It's just so crazy and so dangerous. So they have to lower the speed limits. They have to do other things too. They obviously, they need to narrow the roads down, do some road dieting, but speed limits have to be lower too. That's going to be a lifelong job, (laughs) Assembly Member Friedman. She will always have something to do with speed limits, I'm sure. Well, until they put speed governors in cars. Yes, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Well, they got them on e-bikes. They have them on scooters. Because that's the real danger right there. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now I'm going to go off my list because there's another bill. In fact, I just posted an op-ed that CalBike and Transform wrote for us. AB 371 is a bill. It does a couple of things, but one of the things it does is it creates an insurance requirement for scooter programs. Nobody else has a similar kind of insurance requirement. Bikes too, bike share. Well, they took bike share out of the bill. Oh. And that was so that people on bikes and people like CalBike wouldn't object to it, but CalBike was not fooled (laughs) because it would be really easy to make a little change in the future to change that. First off, the shared scooter industry is going to disappear. We're just not going to have those scooters anymore. Right when we should be encouraging people when they can to ride those, but it's going to kill them because the insurance requirement is really high, much higher than any car rental or anyone else has to cover. And it doesn't even really increase safety at all. If you think about it, insurance is just like, oh, if you crash, then someone can collect money. So it's not going to do anything to make it safer for riders or anyone that might be hit or crashed into by a rider, which I think is what the people who wrote this bill are so concerned about. But it would be really easy to put bike share back in there. But also, as they're saying at CalBike, this is really like a little first step towards creating some kind of an insurance requirement for privately owned scooters and privately owned bikes, which don't have insurance requirements right now. And if they did, well, 
bye bye biking. That would be crazy because they cost so much more to insure. So their op ed says, Newsom, hey, veto this thing, please. It's called the kill bike share bill. Yeah, kill bike share bill. Well, kill scooter share because they did take bikes out of it. And then there's the one that we did talk to Laura Friedman about, which is AB 2438, the one that makes transportation agencies account for their emissions. Yeah. I really see biking and climate really woven together and not just because biking is like the climate friendliest possible mode of travel. Also because the current interest in climate, whatever form it takes, is propelling good bike policy in a way that it did for a little while in the 70s. People were riding 10 speeds in the 70s and we all had signs like fight smog, ride a bike and stuff like that. And we didn't have the climate argument then, but we had the environmental argument and it only went so far. But as people are interested in climate, they do recognize, even if they don't say it, that bikes are important. So the progress that we have not been able to make in the last 40, 50 years on bikes is now being made because of climate. That's another way that they're woven together. But also, like you say, the less gas-driven cars we have, the better our air is. All of that helps make biking a better mode. Let's talk about parking. Oh, the parking. So two bills. Assemblymember Friedman has this bill, AB 2097, that prohibits cities from requiring a minimum amount of parking on any project that's any development that's happening close to transit. And this has been an argument that has slowly been recognized as, oh, it makes a lot of sense. So it's kind of exciting that it passed because people still oppose it in various weird ways. But San Diego has done something like this and has found one of the things that happens is that the amount of housing that it's permitted has gone up because it saves money for the developers. And that includes affordable housing. It just makes housing cheaper. And also it lets people who don't want to have a car have options that they don't currently have. Because if you want to rent an apartment, for example, and that developer who developed the apartment building was required to put in two parking spaces per unit, which some of them do, then you don't have a choice. You're paying for your apartment and those two parking spots. And parking is super expensive. This is really a good first step in changing all of that. And then there's another one that kind of scooted under the radar. And I just noticed it myself the other day. So I'm about to write about it. But AB 2206 from Alex Lee is just updates program that was originally passed in 1993. It's parking cash out. So if you're an employer and you provide free parking for your employees, You are supposed to offer any employee who doesn't want to use that parking the equivalent in cash, which is kind of cool. If you're a bike rider or you take transit, who wouldn't want that in cash? The original law, there's just so many ways around it. So this bill kind of looks like it's not doing much. It sort of changes a few definitions, but it's actually going to be really profound because it just closes up some of those loopholes and it creates a system to value the actual market price of a parking spot that's outside of a lease or anything like that. So if you can't figure out how much money you as an employer are paying for those parking spots then here's the formula. And that's the amount of money you got to give your employees if you fall into this category of certain size employee and in a non-attainment area, which 
So if you work for a big employer and everyone around you is getting a free parking spot and you suddenly are offered money instead of that parking spot, what they found is that people drive less, find other ways. It almost sounds like all these are working together. They are. Yeah. The parking stuff is super interesting too, because there's a lot of ways where planning has assumed that parking is necessary. And then along comes Donald Chup. I'm sure you know about him, the professor at UCLA, who was like, well, wait a minute, let's think about this. And he just approaches it from every single angle. And he's convinced a lot of people who understand that, yeah, actually, it's not a good idea just to assume that we need to provide free parking because we're already seeing all of those problems like people driving too much and look at all the huge parking lots that are mostly empty and all these unintended consequences. And these two bills are definitely chupista bills <laughs> moving in the right direction of starting to undo some of that mindset about Chupista parking. referring to followers of Donald Shoup, Professor Donald Shoup at UCLA. Very okay, funny guy, very smart and hilarious. Actually, we're going to interview him in a couple of days. Oh, cool. Um, He's very funny. You will enjoy that. He's got lots of jokes. <laughs> well, I've had him before. I hope I can sound knowledgeable. You can just let him talk. Okay. That's what I did the first time. <laughs> That's the trick. So was that it? We did skip a couple. Okay. What are they? Anthony Portantino, Senator Anthony Portantino had a couple of really good bills. And one of them is giving tax breaks for people who are living car light. The headlines have been all over the place. They've been talking about it as if you're handing a thousand dollars to people who don't have cars. That's not, it's a tax break. It's for lower income households. It's really good because it's encouraging people who don't have cars to stay that way. And the other one is also from Portantino, which requires cities to update their general plans to include active transportation plans. They're supposed to, but there's a lot of ways they get around it. So this is going to fix some of the loopholes in that. Wow. So exciting. Melanie Curry, California Streets blog. Thank you for (laughs) sharing all that with us. Did we miss any? Probably. I've talked enough. No, I think we covered the main ones. And all of those, except the ones that we specifically mentioned, are waiting on Newsom's desk two weeks or so. We'll find out. Well, he's let us down before. But he has also, definitely let us down. But he's also done some good stuff. And he's like, been pushing for a few of these. And we'll know by the end of this month. Yeah, we will. Hi, everybody. This is Bike Talk, and I'm Taylor Nichols. We have kind of an unusual show today. As you know, Bike Talk is on the West Coast in Los Angeles and on the East Coast in Massachusetts. But today, we're right smack in the middle of the country. We're in East Lansing, Michigan, the home of the Michigan State University Spartans and all that. And we have a special guest, Mark Sanderson, who's been in the bike business a long time. In full disclosure, I can say that I think maybe I bought my first bike from you in yeah. probably 1970 from your shop. So you were a real yeah. mom and pop shop here in East Lansing. I remember yeah. besides the business side of it, what's the difference in the mom and pop shop that you had for so many years? And now you work for D&D Cycles, which is a statewide chain that has a lot of stuff. Yeah. You have a beautiful store in East Lansing, right on the corner of Hagedorn and Grand River. I know most of our listeners, that won't mean anything, but it's right yeah. across the street from Michigan State University. So I wonder if you could quickly say what's the difference in a mom and pop shop and a big chain? Well, a lot of advantages. They are one of the biggest giant dealers in the country. So we've had a better time of getting bikes during the pandemic than I would have as a small dealer. As a small dealer, luckily, I had just gotten out of it literally a few months before the pandemic started. I ended my business in December 19. 
And the store was closed for a couple months for remodeling and we reopened and the pandemic started and shutdown came along. And I would not have been able to weather that or been able to buy enough inventory to keep it going during that time. And being a part of a bigger organization that had more resources and more pull with suppliers, it really made a difference because we had a lot of inventory during the pandemic. And much to a lot of people's surprise, there was a huge increase in demand during that time. And I financially would not have been able to keep the inventory in the store that we were able to take advantage of during that time. Right. In Los Angeles, and I assume here, Bicycle shops were deemed essential places of business, so you were able to stay open. Yeah, there was a brief period where most everything was shut down, and then they were deemed one of the next tier when they first opened it up. While obviously grocery stores and things like that, car repair places never had to shut down, but bike shops were supposed to. So there was a period there of a few weeks, but we were one of the first things to reopen. When you had your own shop, you probably sold a bunch of different kinds of bikes. Did you have one brand that you sold or? I have sold many different brands over the years. Towards the end there, we were mostly just a giant dealer. So that continued on with D&D. That's one reason they were interested. I think I sold Giant and Electra was about the only other brand I sold a few of. A few years back, I sold Trek and then they opened a company store less than a mile away from us. And so I made the transition to Giant maybe in about 2014 very happy with them as a supplier. And now at D&D, you do mostly Giants, correct? Yes. But Giant has a couple of different brands. I wonder if you could talk us through that. Yeah. Well, a few years back, Giant decided to branch all of the women's product, not just bikes, but all the clothing and helmets and shoes and everything. If it's a women's product, they call it Liv, L-I-V. So they're still giant bikes. They're just marketed separately. It's kind of a wonderful thing where a lot of companies now have cut back on the women's product offerings, made the men's sizes more what they're marketing to. Giant has expanded on that. And Liv has their own engineers who are pretty much all women, as I understand, their own marketers. It's almost handled as a separate division, but they are still giant bikes and giant quality bikes. That's interesting. I always thought the difference in quote unquote men's bike and women's bike was just a step through frame. What are the other differences that make a bike special for women? Yeah, well, generally speaking, and this doesn't apply to every woman, but if you look at a group of 10 or 12 women and 10 or 12 men that were all the same height, pretty large percentage of the women would have longer legs and a shorter torso. So if you bought a bike based on your leg length, if you were a woman, oftentimes you got a bike that was too long for you, too much reach. So as a general trend, women's bikes have shorter top tubes relative to the seat tube length. And then other things like women's saddles, colors and graphics are different to make them more appealing to women in general. But mostly it's the frame geometry. The biggest factor there is the shorter top tube, usually a little taller head tube as well. I was in your shop the other day because I'm back home in East Lansing. And I noticed you have a lot of e-bikes. I wonder if you could talk real quick about the prevalence of e-bikes in a town like East Lansing. Yeah, e-bikes are a continually growing segment. And we find all sorts of customers that want them. In general, it's older people, but there are some younger people who are enjoying them. The ones we sell are all pedal assist. We don't have any that have a throttle. So you do have to turn the pedals, but you don't have to work too hard at it. I think you rode one, you probably noticed how easy it is to ride. So people that have differing abilities or say they have joint problems or heart issues or overweight, they can get on an e-bike and pedal and you can get still as much workout as you really want. It's just that you'll go a lot further and a lot faster than you a could lot faster, on a right. bike. Yeah. Yeah. One of the nice things about e-bikes in a town like Los Angeles is you can ride to work 
and not yeah. be sweating when you get there because you don't have to work as hard. <laughs> yes. Bike Talk deals a lot with advocacy and what's going on in the world of advocacy. And we're working all the time to try to spread the word for bicycle infrastructure and housing near employment and things like that. And I wonder, mm -hmm. over your years of serving the bike business in a town like East Lansing with Michigan State right there, where are you all now in developing good infrastructure for safe biking and safe commuting for students and faculty and employees of Michigan State? But Lansing is also the capital, so there's a lot of employment here. What's going on in the advocacy world in a college town like East Lansing? Well, I think there's quite a bit. In the years I've been here, there's been a huge increase in the number of bike lanes. You've probably noticed when you come back to town, some main thoroughfares like Michigan Avenue and Abbott Road and many others, and then a lot on campus. They've transformed a lot of those streets to maybe where they were four lanes now to be in two lanes with the center left turn lane and a bike right. lane on each side. And the MSU specifically really done a lot with that. There's a lot of places where there are bike lanes on the main streets. And I know that they have at least one bike maintenance area where you pull up and there's a pump and you can pump up your tires and maybe do a quick repair on your bike right on campus there. Yeah, it's um, right there on the banks of the Red Cedar, Yeah, right across from the stadium. Yes. For the people that don't know, either in Massachusetts or on the West Coast, Michigan State University was a land-grant college, and it was developed in the 1840s or 50s, I believe. 1855, yes. 1855. And so the campus is huge. It's very mm -hmm. spread out, and there's a lot of agricultural areas where they're growing crops and working with animals and things like that. And right. when I was a child in the 60s and 70s, Michigan State had bicycle lanes all over the campus, and they were foot-wide little paths. And there were two, one going in each direction all over right. the campus. And I think yeah. those have now been replaced by more modern bicycle ways. And it's just a great place to ride. How many students come to your store, and what's the student use and need for bikes? Well, we do get a lot of students being right across from the campus. When I used to be right downtown, it was almost 80% students. Now we've moved a little bit out where there's some free parking and things like that that make it more appealing to some families and local people. But yes, we do get a lot of students, a lot of repair work from students. We get quite busy when students come back in the fall, especially for foreign students. We have a pretty large foreign contingent that comes here, and oftentimes when they show up, they've got only a couple of suitcases they can carry with them on the plane. So they need to find a bike and lock and all that kind of stuff. So we do pretty well with students there. Right. Who does have their own bike shop now on campus that's been in operation for 10 or 12 years. I don't know if you knew that, but it's right on the river where they used to rent canoes. They have a bike shop. Oh, wow. So okay. They do mostly the repairs and they have volunteer people that learn to fix the bikes there. And they take a lot of the bikes that were left behind that the DPS used yeah. to auction and they fix yeah. them up and paint them all green. And then they can lease them back to students who want a cheap way of riding on campus. So that's a good program. A true um, green machine, right? Yep. They just use the rattle cans to paint them all green and <laughs> not too particular where the paint goes either. It sometimes gets on the tires <laughs> and others. And the chain, uh, right? Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I have always been a fan of the mom and pop bicycle yeah. shop. But when I go into your store, not only am I glad that you were able to be open and get inventory during something like the pandemic, it's a beautiful store with a lot of square footage and a huge selection of bikes, everything from children's bikes to e-bikes. 
And so in that sense, if the chain is what keeps us going, I'm all for that. So I want to thank you for all the service you gave to East Lansing for all the years you had your own shop, but also thank you for shepherding a chain like D&D into East Lansing and make it feel like a mom and pop shop. Yeah, thank you. Well, I highly recommend if anybody is in East Lansing, just ride around East Lansing. It's a great town to cycle in, as is Ann Arbor and Kalamazoo. And so, Mark, thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you very much for having me. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now we hear from Ashley Heyer in Chicago. Ashley has managed to keep parents from dropping their kids off in her bike lane. A lot of bikers aren't comfortable to like have discussions with drivers, but I feel like I've been riding long enough. I feel safe enough that that's kind of where I should be at. I'm having the conversation with them, which is something that every day you don't necessarily want to have a conversation with any random stranger. You never know what could happen. But at a certain point, you need to say something if that's what you believe. And that's what I believe. Yeah. You were yelling at parents. (laughs) Yes. I was yelling at parents who were parked in what is one of the very few east-west divided bike lanes in Chicago. And it goes right in front of a elementary school which it's understandable they need to get their kids to the school, but there's two streets that have no bike infrastructure. They have a parking lot. There's plenty of places you could go to drop your child off. You don't need to do it inside this bike lane. So yes, in this case, I was yelling at the parents. I probably was also yelling at one of the school administrators who it seemed like had parked her car in the bike lane and then got out to like assist with drop off. Because when I got to the car, there was nobody in it. And she kind of looked uncomfortable. I was like, oh, it's your car. Like, I see you right here. There are at least three amazing things about this story. One is that you made a change happen. I feel like I did. And it's like, it's touch and go. It's not every day, but it's been three years of being agitated at this bike lane and yelling at, you know, whoever's there, whatever's there, making phone calls, but a lot of just yelling because I don't have time for a lot of other stuff. I'm, I'm just a person. I work for the city, you know, I'm just out here being like, get out of my way. So for the first year where I rode this route, the school would park their yellow buses in this bike lane and all those yellow buses were idling. So there's drivers inside the buses. So I would be yelling at the drivers. Hey, what are you doing? This isn't a, this isn't a parking spot. You have a parking lot. You have a parking lot. You have a parking lot is what I I'm always yelling at them. You literally have a place for this. So I think once I started taking video and posting the stuff online and tagging them, I think the school realized like, this is a horrible look. You know, we don't really need to be doing this. We can have the buses go somewhere else. So that I feel like was the first change. And that was like in 2020. So it was like 2019 to 2020, we fought the bosses. 2020, it was now the parents' turn because the parents are now taking up this space that has been left by the buses. So the parents are using it as a quick drop-off zone. It takes a lot of effort to stop every day because why couldn't you just go around? They're pointing, just go around. And it's like you turn around and you look and like maybe sometimes it's safe to go around and maybe sometimes there's a car going 50 miles an hour and it's not safe to go around. It's frustrating to engage with them every single morning on the same topic, but I try to keep it cool. I keep it yelly. You know, I don't do nothing that it's not reasonable in my opinion. I want to go down the bike lane. You're parked in the bike lane. You're raising an elementary school age kid as well. It's like, you want them to respect rules. You need to respect rules. You want them to do the right thing. You need to do the right thing. You have said that in one of your interactions, I think it was that official you mentioned, said you're scaring the children. (laughs) Yes. One lady, I'm not sure if she was the principal or what. Yeah. She came over with her clipboard on the first day of school this year. You're scaring the children. Like, can you please stop? I'm like, notably, she didn't have anything to say to the parent who was parked in the bike lane. 
I know that they've made repeated statements to the parents, please don't park in this bike lane because I've been calling them for the past year asking them to like do something about it. So like this parent knows they're not supposed to do it, but the only one that person had smoked for was me because I was asserting my right to ride my bicycle down the bike lane. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I just don't buy it. I thought it was a disingenuous way for her to engage with the issue because she should have gone to the driver first and foremost and said, we've told you not to park here. Please don't park here. That driver would have driven off. It wouldn't have had to be about me, which none of this is about me anyway. Like this is about a school drop-off procedure that is totally out of whack. People are living two miles from the school and driving the car two miles to protect themselves from everyone else who's driving the car for two miles. It's like, this is a, what do they call that? Vicious. A vicious cycle or an arms race where everybody ends up with bigger, more powerful cars. And then like everybody's more scared. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So when they came at me and like kind of attacked me for being loud or whatever and scaring the children, I'm like, car crashes are scary for kids. Dying by car is scary for kids. Number one cause of death for kids in America, car. Mm-hmm. driving it's not safe for the children you know mm-hmm. everyone walking taking the bicycle more human scale things this makes more sense to me like this is what i think we should be encouraging like elementary school kids and parents to do instead of being like this bicyclist is bad for <laughs> yelling like i wouldn't even yell if i didn't have to i'm only doing it because y'all make me yeah i guess a lot of times anything that's out of the status quo is there's just an immediate reaction against and the parents dropping kids off is not against the status quo yeah they're used to driving straight up to the curb and like that's probably i mean the kids change every year so it's hard to say these parents are used to this process because like the kids only go there for a few years and then they go to a different school so it's like it's hard to break bad behaviors for drivers but this is a case where i feel like yeah the school needs to help them and like provide a better drop-off procedure or like freaking ban the cars from dropping off if people come from x miles away they can drive the car if they come from y miles away no car y'all need to walk and like i understand in chicago lots of children are being enrolled in schools that are outside of their neighborhood certain schools have been closed and certain kids only have access to schools that are far away And I understand that the the parents may need a car to get there, but not every kid going to that school lives far away from it. Many of those kids live within two miles. And if Mm -hmm. like the 80% of kids who live within two miles of the school could get there in a safe manner, it wouldn't just be a constant traffic jam every single morning and every single evening with idling cars and like the poor like crossing guard lady. Like I I try to defend her against the drivers too, because they're always driving at her. I'm like, this person is giving their time to help your child get to school safely. And you are driving your car at her every single morning. What do you think that's doing to the back of your brainstem? Yeah. Your is firing because people just can't be bothered to like act like human beings. So what does this do to your commute when you have to stop and engage? It doesn't take, I don't take too long. I got time for them. I got an electric cargo bike now, so I can just zip up there, <laughs> zip, stop give my three, four minutes to the cause and then zip on by. But yeah, I'd say it's like a three to five minute, you know, it could be a three to five minute delay, but I'm lucky I live close to my work. It takes me about 15, 20 minutes to ride my bike there. So if I get out of the house at 7.30 or whatever, I got plenty of time to deal with whoever I need to deal with. So would you go farther with the school and help them to figure out? If I were to be asked, perhaps, But I think right now they're treating me as kind of like a pariah, like a weird lady kind of thing. I don't want to involve myself in the school if they're kind of in their head thinking like this weirdo lady. I'm not a weirdo lady. I'm a member of the community who needs to get to work. I have reasonable expectations, but like the way that they think of me, I'm like, I'm not going to volunteer my time 
to people who don't respect me. If they were like, yes, this is a huge problem. We really need to find some solutions. Can you help us find some solutions? I would be right there at the table immediately. What should they do? I think they, and I think they did institute what is perhaps a drop-off policy that is like, use the parking lot, please don't use the bike lane. And I don't know that anyone's enforcing it, but people seem to be following along. Maybe they announced it a bit stronger than they had in the past years. Mm -hmm. So I think that helps just a process change about where it's acceptable to drop off and make it easier to drop off in areas that make sense, like the areas with the parking lots. And I had mentioned a little bit earlier, certain kids go to schools that are further from their home and certain kids go to schools that are closer to their home. In all honesty, and I don't know if the school could do this, but they need to look at commuting distances and say, these kids are okay to come by car. Here's their drop-off zone. You know, these kids, their parents are prohibited from bringing them to school by car, basically. Hashtag ban cars. <laughs> and like, if those kids who lived within two miles and were able to walk or were able to cycle, you're going to see way more reasonability in that drop-off process. So you're not having to manage 300 parents every single day. Yeah. So yeah, I think they need process change. It's not, you're not going to be able to ask and hope your way into solving this because it's just too convenient for drivers at this point to just pull up to the curb and block and just mm-hmm. think that you're a dumb bitch for even wanting to go down a bike lane. It's like, that's so easy for them to slip into. What do you think it would take for the school to actually look into where kids live and their routes to school? Like I said, I don't even know if they're allowed to do that. Yeah. I don't know if they would need kind of like a third party that would be like a transportation oriented somebody that's like, oh, we want to increase cycling to school. This is a voluntary way. Like, you know, the kids can opt into this program and in doing so are like making their trip to school, like public to whoever's running, you know, not like where you actually live, but like how long does it take you? So you're like, okay, I want to participate in this program. That's like reducing cars at school drop-offs. Okay. Now I'm in the program as a student. The person who runs the program asked me, how far do you take to get to school? And I'm like, oh, I'm one mile. And they're like, oh, okay. So they can do a bike bus, Mm -hmm. which I've seen. So there's like probably kids who come from similar areas in the neighborhoods. They would all ride their bike together with a marshal Mm -hmm. and the marshal one in the front, one in the back blockers as well. Make sure the kids get to school safely. If there's a shortage of bus drivers, if we're not allowing cars, like this is a great way for us, a small number of adults to get a large number of kids to, to actually go there. And the kids would probably have to opt in and all that. Bike bus, definitely. There's a Halstead bike bus here in Chicago that is being I, run by a group called Bike Grid Now. Oh yeah, They're taking on like all the nice professionals who want to commute downtown, but are too, would like to go in a group. You know, they're riding them yeah. from the north side all the way to the loop in a group of bicyclists, basically bike bus. I've seen some videos of bike buses that are so inspiring. I mean, they have yeah. some that are, they have sound systems. Yes, Kids you can make it fun. Yeah. I can't imagine getting a child up and getting them into the car every day is like, really an enjoyable process. I don't have kids, nor will I ever have any kids, so I will never know. But... <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure they hate it. I have a friend who's like, kids love to, they have a box bike. It's not like a whole big Fiat, but I think they got like a box, a box up there. Is box big Fiat? Is that what it means? Oh, I think it might. They have a box bike, whatever that means. And the the kids that he said, the kids get up early to ride the bike. They're like, they want to ride in the box. They don't want to ride in the car and they're willing to change their morning schedule so that they're able to take a mode of transit that they prefer. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you have to leave listening to your kids. You have to care what your kids think to like know this kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. But I think there's an opportunity there because I can't imagine the if parents hate it, kids hate it, too, because, you know, your parents are all irritated in all this traffic. Mm-hmm. I had to imagine I was bust. Mm-hmm. I was never driven individually by my parents. Yeah, you could have been bike bust. No, I wish I could lived too far from school. But with the bike bus, I think we could make it happen. Yeah. And then I think probably a lot of parents would say, well, you know, I don't have that kind of bike. I have to be at work. It can become complicated, but you could work it on all of the parts of it. Too. Yeah, I agree that it is changing mode shift from car to bike. It's challenging because you're used to using the car for everything. You're used to just getting in the car and the car is there for you, no matter what moment of the day it is. And I'm from Iowa. I grew up in a car culture. I grew up, that's where you keep your things. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I have extra pair of shoes. They're in the car. Why would I not bring my car? In the city, it doesn't make as much sense because it's expensive to drive the car. There's nowhere to park the car. You can't leave the car there forever. So like I moved to Manhattan after I lived in Iowa and that taught me, you don't need a car. You can take an office chair on the subway. You know, you just need to get creative about how you're going to solve your problems. And then when I moved to Chicago, I'm like, okay, the bike is here to stay. Like the traffic is so bad. It is going to be challenging to get people out of the car. There's no good infrastructure. You have to fight everybody who's parked in the bike lanes. You know, it might not make sense for people, but what I really want people to take to heart is that it makes sense for some of us. And there's no reason why you need to be such a to people who it makes sense for. I've been chased, literally chased by these parents. There was one parent in particular who chased me toward Rush Hospital, parked the car, got out of the car and came and she was trying to get me. She was jumping at me. I'm like, yeah. like, it's not necessary. Just because I rode a bike, that's not necessary. You know, I let you drive your car. I didn't let you park in the bike lane, but it's not like I physically removed you. But it's like saying something to someone who's like in the wrong makes them so aggressive. Yeah. It's like, I just wish we could get out of that cycle where, yes, you are in the wrong. It's okay to be wrong. You don't need to attack people who are different than you because you're wrong. You see this over and over not, again. Not everybody has to bike. You know, I get it. But it's like, some people want to, and they're not able to because people are just so rude. Yeah. Not everybody's willing to do what you did. Right. And I don't blame them because as we can see, some people don't take too kindly to anybody saying anything to them, regardless of if they're wrong or not. Mm -hmm. defenses come up hard and you need to be a very good and able rider because they will try to hit you. You can't expect many people to put themselves out there like that. Absolutely. Which is why there should be people who work for the city who do this kind of thing. This is why there should be better infrastructure built by cities. You know, it shouldn't be on every single individual bicyclist to live. And that's what it really is about right now. It's like me and vibes, me and lady luck are out here. You know, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But public officials could do much more. They're not even doing what they need to do with the CTA. So why would I expect them to do what they need to do with bicycle infrastructure? What do you mean about the CTA? CTA, Chicago Transit Authority, like the buses and trains. First of all, they're causing a lot of car traffic because especially buses, there's no bus rapid transit. There's been politicians and various people over the years who have basically made it so that there would be no bus rapid transit. There's been politicians and just like powerful people in general who have not allowed us to progress in the way we should with public transit in the city. There's a lot of people in the city of Chicago who rely on public transit. There's like 30% of households in the city of Chicago who do not own a car. 
there aren't enough operators, there's not enough money, the technology is not showing you which buses are coming, it's just showing you which buses are scheduled and they don't have enough operators, so not all those routes are running, but they're still showing them all to you and saying, we haven't cut service. It's like, you can't get on a bus when you expect to, and that's a huge problem. Is that part of why you're on a bike? Oh, absolutely. Most definitely. I would, I take a train every so once in a while. It depends on where I'm going. Train or bus depends on where I'm going, but I don't like to wait. I'm saving myself 10, 15 hours a week, just not waiting for transit. All right. Well, Ash, this is a, uh, a story of defying the odds and coming out and winning. (laughs) I can't believe it. It felt really good to me this morning because I rode down a clear bike lane and I looked at the, I looked at the crossing guard lady and I was like, it's been three years, but we committed to it. You know, you got to commit to what you want. That's what I told her. So I believe that. Do you want to say the name of the school? No, I don't want to say the name of the school. <laughs> it's an elementary school okay. in the city of Chicago. Could be any. Could be anyone. Yeah. All right. Well, good talking to you. Thank All you. Right, thank you. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate you. All you right. Too. Have a good Take one. Care. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Robert Zakowski runs the two-wheeled politics blog in Toronto. You're with Toronto Communities Bikeways Coalition? That's right. Uh, It's a group that has started about two years ago, uh, early in the COVID-19 pandemic. We were calling for bikeways uh, along uh, subway lines at busy suburban bus routes to help uh, essential workers uh, get around safely. And 120 community groups had uh, signed on. It just started during COVID. Yes. And we've evolved to be uh, more focused on accountability uh, and amplify community uh, voices and doing fun activities at the same time. Time. So you're like a real bike coalition now. You could say that, yes. Toronto has others, right? Cycle Toronto is the primary uh, member-supported uh, cycling advocacy organization. You also have the Bike Brigade. You have Scarborough Cycles, Toronto Cyclists, like both based Scarborough. You have the Webed Cycling Network, and you have cycling clubs such as Mandem uh, that are racially uh, diverse, uh, unlike a lot of other cycling clubs out there. Well, thanks for the layout. Now we know who to talk to in Toronto. Yeah, and there's also a group called Advocacy for Respect for Cyclists, which is responsible for uh, setting up ghost bikes when a cyclist has been killed on the road. Oh, okay. I have noticed that Toronto is active on bike Twitter. Absolutely, yeah. The BikeTO hashtag has has always gone a fair bit of activity, uh, whether it's people complaining about vehicles blocking the bike lane or the bike lane barriers being um, bent or uh, discussion regarding very some motions that are coming up to city council. You're kind of focused on Toronto's bike plan. Is that your specialty, Robert? Yes. When I first started getting involved in cycling advocacy uh, almost 10 years ago, I uh, looked at the uh, city's budget. It was something uh, that the other advocates were doing. And through my work at the uh, Building Awareness with the rest of the cycling community, the city Toronto ended up doubling the uh, cycling funding in 2016 from about $8 million a year to uh, $16 million. Sorry, 2022, it's now uh, $20 million a year. On bike funding? Yes. That's funding for uh, like building on street bike lane, doing the uh, design and consultation work uh, as well. And you were instrumental in doubling it? Or at least building awareness on the needs for advocates to be involved with the city uh, budget process. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's not something people immediately jump to. Exactly. Um, And another thing I've noticed with Toronto is that the city cycling budget has not been fully uh, spent, with maybe the exception of 2020, when they had to uh, get people from other uh, departments to uh, 
implement the uh, quick build of bikeways as part of the uh, active TO. The, the money was in the budget, but it wasn't used? Wasn't fully spent. That's correct. So does it go over to the next year? Yes, as a carry forward item. Oh, okay. But you see that it, it should have been spent. Right, which was why uh, Albert Cola, who founded the Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition, had asked me to uh, help him track how many bike lanes were uh, installed annually. By uh, 2018, so three years into the bike plan, we found out about 25 kilometers had been installed, and we put out this uh, article at Dandy Horse called WTF is up with the bike plan. So they're not implementing the bike plan. Yeah. So in 2016, when the bike plan was approved, the plan was to build 335 kilometers of on-street of bike lanes. How, how many did they build? Yeah. So based on my uh, tracking us uh, so far, there's 87 kilometers built. And when were they supposed to have that 300-something kilometers? By 2025. So they're not really on track to do that unless they change what they're doing. Exactly. Um, early on, there were some issues coordinating cycling projects with major uh, capital works projects, something which I was informed has been improved uh, in recent years. What does that mean? When a road is uh, due for a reconstruction, some of us advocates have been calling for a uh, bike lane projects to be considered by default. When the City of Toronto approved an updated Vision Zero plan in 2019, there was a reference to that uh, approved. That sounds like something I've heard before, like in Los Angeles, where this show started, they have a ballot measure going to the to the ballot to vote on directly in 2024 called Healthy Streets LA, which would automatically implement the city's bike plan every time a street's repaved. It sounds like the same thing. More or less. Does this all mean that they're going to catch up to their bike plan? It's hard to say at this point, but I have noticed that over the past year, there have been more cycling public consultations than in any year I've been involved. It does look promising for years to come, but I feel that it's still not at the pace that's needed in order to meet Transportio's goal of having 75% of trips to be done by foot, bike, and transit under five kilometers or three miles by 2030. I guess we'll keep an eye on that. And you also have an article out about the Toronto election coming up in October. That's right. Uh, I want to uh, shed the light on uh, how many uh, kilometers of bike lanes were installed under uh, Mayor Tory's administration uh, over the past two terms. And unfortunately, his administration only installed about 95 kilometers or 60 miles, which compared to other cities is embarrassingly low. And yeah, I noticed you compared it to Seville. That's right. Is it fair to compare something to Seville? Isn't that like a great bike city? Well, I know that Montreal is uh, another a city that uh, Toronto likes to compare itself to. Montreal averages about 50 kilometers a year. And how much for Toronto? For the past 20 years, my understanding is uh, they've been installing about seven kilometers a year. Oh, yeah, that's low. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to meet their bike plans. But you say the bike plans in Toronto are changing, right? There's like three different plans. and When the city of Toronto uh, was first formed in 1998 by merging um, with five other municipalities, mm -hmm. they uh, came up with the original bike plan in 2001. That one had called for 495 kilometers of bike lanes, or about 300 miles. And of that, 
only a quarter had been built by the time it was replaced with 10-year cycling network plan in 2016. That ended up being dropped in favor of these near-term cycling implementation plans. There was one approved in 2019, so covered 2019 to 2021. And then the most recent one was approved in December 2021 for 2022 to 2024. So there's different bike plans. And does each one supplant the one that came before it? The near-term plans do, yes. And they're also guided by this major uh, citywide cycling network, which was part of the 2019 uh, bike plan update. Okay. So you're also going to be looking at candidates for office from a cycling perspective. That's right. I have been meeting with several uh, candidates already and have been um, arranging bike rides with uh, a couple of them. Our organization is uh, considering uh, endorsing candidates, so uh, stay tuned over the next couple of weeks. Okay. So the, the election's in October. October 24th. You have a lot of counselors who are leaving. That's right. Seven out of 25. The Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition has some calls to action. You want to go over those? Absolutely. The first one is we want to make all uh, residential streets a 30 kilometer per hour speed limit and all arterial roads have a 40 kilometer speed limit. So that's 20 and 25 miles per hour, respectively. The second okay, call that's good. is the second call to action is to increase the capital funding for Vision Zero to uh, $75 million per year starting in 2023. For reference, this year's uh, capital budget calls for uh, $24 million. Okay. And the third call to action is to um, fulfill the uh, transportio goal of 75% of trips under five kilometers done by foot, bike, and transit by 2030, which would require fully implementing the current near-term bike plan. Okay. And so you'll be meeting with candidates and you'll, I guess, see how they react to these calls to action? Uh, exactly. Uh, I believe we will be uh, doing our formal uh, outreach to the uh, counselors to uh, sign on to these commitments in the writing. And the plan is to hold a press conference ahead of the uh, road safety march on October 2nd. Very good. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a couple other cities, Seville and Spain and Montreal, also in Canada. How does Toronto compare to other bike cities? If you had asked me this question uh, before the pandemic, I would say that Toronto uh, is an embarrassment compared to uh, other North American cities. We know that Montreal, uh, they have been miles ahead of Toronto for uh, quite some time. I had biked in uh, Vancouver almost 10 years ago, and I was uh, pretty impressed with their network. So I did wish that British Columbia would repeal their mandatory helmet law for adults. Mm -hmm. And even Ottawa, which is a smaller city, I had a pretty good impression with their bikeway network. And they are a current North American leader in terms of designing and building protected intersections. Speaking of which, Toronto had only got their first one earlier this year. Okay. But since the pandemic, it's changed? It has come a long way as you're starting to see uh, spines get built. But unfortunately, uh, Toronto still has a long way to go in order to be considered a cycling city, especially outside the downtown core. So if somebody's coming to Toronto with a bike, I guess if they stick to certain parts, they'll be fine. Yeah, if they're biking with the, the downtown core, uh, there is a pretty decent coverage. Um, I know the waterfront trail uh, is heavily used, uh, especially during the summer months. The downtown core has also gone um, heavy uh, activity. Um, 
I believe it's Toronto's busiest bikeway with over uh, 6,000 cyclists per day. Bloor huh. is also up there in terms of uh, usage. I think this they counted uh, 5,200 uh, cyclists uh, per day in 2019, but Savalters with Bells of Bloor had uh, counted more than 6,000 a day before the pandemic. So that seems like a lot. It is, but uh, when I was reading uh, some uh, data on Montreal this morning, I've noticed that uh, some of their bikeways have seen uh, seven or 8,000 a day. So you're, you're looking to Montreal. Yes, but one thing that Toronto is starting to get a good handle on is their bike share system. When I last checked, there was like 6,850 bikes at 625 stations before this year's expansion. And by 2025, the aim is to get to 10,000 bikes or 1,000 stations across all 25 wards in this city. The, the bike share, is that a private, that's a private entity? Uh, no, it is uh, owned by the Toronto Parking Authority. Oh, okay. There's no private entity involved in the bike share? There's a company called the Shift Transit that operates it, but the assets are owned by the Toronto Parking Authority. Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition, it seems like you're doing good work. Yes. And one thing which some other volunteers uh, with the coalition had done um, last year uh, was developed this bikeway uh, report card. And it had found that a majority of Toronto's bikeways had deserved a failing grade. That's a smart tool. Yeah, I was disappointed that something like this hadn't been done before. Yeah. Another thing that uh, our group had to help campaign for is for the city to prepare an annual uh, cycling year in review. The good news is the city finally released their uh, first uh, edition uh, back in March. And I'm hoping that the city could continue releasing uh, this report annually going forward. It's a year in review for biking. Yeah, so it'll talk about uh, how many kilometers of bikeways were installed, some of the uh, major projects, some bike share uh, statistics, and maybe uh, some things uh, about looking forward. All right. Well, thank you, Robert Zykowski. Is there anything else we should look forward to? coming from Toronto? With regards to Young Street, there is a petition out there calling for the uh, Midtown Young Complete Street pilot to be made permanent. And that's an important street? Yes, especially since a decision will be made in January 2023. Well, good luck with that, Robert. Thank you. We can check out your article at Spacing Toronto, Robert Mm -hmm. Zykowski's article. It's called Election 2022, Toronto Election from Cycling Perspective. That's right. All right, great. Thanks for talking to us today, Robert. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. Heart started, push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. Heart started, push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Yeah.